Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick. Robert Brokamp had emergency gallbladder surgery, so he's not here today. But the show goes on, and we have Sean Gates and Megan Brinsfield with us. Hi. Hello. They are financial planners and advisors with Motley Fool Wealth Management. And in the spirit of the presidential debates, they are joining us to go mano e womano to argue the pros and cons of some of the most common money conundrums we face. They're also going to answer your questions about holding employer stock, managing your 401k, and more. All that, and like I said, more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Cue the serious cable network presidential music, Rick. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today in the first foolish debate, Money Fight 2015. Standing at the podium is Megan Brinsfield wearing a smart pants suit and sensible shoes. We also have Sean Gates donning a non-offensive tie and a patriotic pin on his lapel. Both are financial advisors with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of The Motley Fool. Thank you for joining us today. Greetings, citizens. Glad to be here. (laughs) I hope your communications teams have properly prepared you for this debate. Are you ready? Sure. All right, let's begin. Interest rates are so low. Should I bother paying down tax-deductible debt, such as a mortgage, as quickly as possible, or should I put the money elsewhere where it can grow, such as investing it? Megan, where do you stand on this issue? I stand on the side of paying down your mortgage, and I have three main reasons for that. The first is that paying down your mortgage is a guaranteed rate of savings, whereas investing or doing other things with the money is a gamble. And so you don't really know what's going to happen with it. The second reason is just that we have enough uh, to manage in terms of our finances. And so if you have the money and the means to start paying down your mortgage, why wouldn't you do that so you can cross one more item off of your financial to-do list? And finally, it reduces ongoing cash needs. So if you are someone who's looking at retirement soon, it really reduces the amount that you need to draw from your portfolio on a monthly basis going forward. Sean, your rebuttal? Yeah, so I think from the perspective of pay, you know, not paying down the mortgage and investing some of that money and carrying the mortgage, I think it makes a lot of sense because if you look at where you allocate capital, right? So each person has only a certain amount of capital to allocate to different things in their lives. And if you start to put all of that capital to work in a house, you're over concentrating your funds into primary real estate, which historically has not performed that well, depending on the area that you're in. I think nationally, over the last 30 years, it's maybe 1.5%, give or take. And so, over-concentration is a big risk that I think you could avoid by investing the difference. Uh, Secondarily, you're locking that money up. It's very difficult to get a hold of money once it's been put into your primary residence. You could do a, a second home line of credit if you wanted to, where you can get a little access to that capital. Um, but there are costs associated with that, so I don't know that I would do that. Um, and then finally, you know, while it's a guaranteed rate when you pay it down, you're, you're getting rid of the interest rate. Who knows whether or not that the where you allocated that capital otherwise couldn't provide a better rate of return? Certainly po- possible to do. Those are good points on both sides. Let's move on to the next question, shall we? <laughs> the earliest a person can take Social Security is at 62 but they'll only get 75% of the monthly benefits. Should they take Social Security early while the getting is decent? I mean, isn't Social Security supposed to run dry at some point here? Or should they wait until 66 when full benefits kick in? Sean, where do you stand? 
So I think I would stand on the side of taking Social Security early. And this is somewhat of a controversial stance, especially in the planner world, because this is where we can potentially add a lot of value. Uh, but I, I think, number one, the government finances are kind of in a messy state. Who knows whether or not they'll be able to pay for the Social Security benefits that they've promised. Uh, I mean, I don't know that I'll get them. I'm in a young demographic, so they could be gone. Uh, so trying to start them early and claim them to get your benefits is a good idea. Uh, second of all, the Social Security Administration is pretty clever. So each payment that is paid out to the recipients is actually actuarially calculated such that your benefit is equivalent, more or less, to what you would have gotten if you had waited to take a different benefit. And so I think to try and game the system to get a supposed guaranteed rate of return on the benefit increases is a loser's game, I'll say. Um, and then finally, you don't know when you're going to die. No one does. So if you died early, uh, then you missed out on a bunch of early payments that you could have claimed. Um, and so I think trying to time your own death is difficult to do. So you think there are people on their on their deathbed saying, oh God, if only I had applied for Social Security sooner. I think there are several people who do that. Several. <laughs> At least one. At least one. All right, Megan, where do you stand on this issue? Uh, I stand on the delaying side of the Social Security issue. So you mentioned that you can take it as early as 62. You can also claim Social Security as late as age 70, and you get roughly an 8% per year increase in your benefit by doing so. And that sounds good, right? More money per month sounds like a good thing. So this uh, is a logical argument. But uh, as Sean mentioned, you don't know when you're going to die. But the older you get, the older you're likely to live. And it's not just about you. It's about your family as well. Your survivors can claim Social Security based on your benefit amount. And so you should be looking at this as a family decision, not just as an individual decision. Stop being so selfish, <laughs> is my argument. <laughs> um, but you also have to keep in mind that uh, Sean mentioned the government program as well. Messy government equals opportunity for average Americans. And I say you seize the day and uh, wait to claim your higher benefit later. Uh, Says the tax expert. <laughs> messy government. You is can count on it. Yeah, continuing to be messy. Um, but also, changes to the program are really unlikely to affect uh, people who are older right now and looking at making this decision in the near term. Um, and so, I think that the doomsday sort of sayers of you know the program's going to run out of money um, are really just scaring people. And Sean, you're scaring people. That's what I'm here for. I mean, not just in this conversation. Generally, <laughs> you're scaring people. You're scaring people. HR has <laughs> filed some complaints. And let's move on to the next question, shall we? Annuities come in all shapes and sizes, but generally speaking, you'll typically fork over a large sum of cash to an insurance or investment company, and in return, you'll receive regular payments over time, which can provide a nice steady income in retirement. Sounds great, but they have an ishy reputation. So, are annuities good? or bad? I'm going with bad, uh, mainly because I think that they're expensive, they're difficult to get out of, you've got limited investment choices, and so once you make that decision to go into an annuity, it's really hard to reverse, whereas a lot of other investments um, you can just sell if you no longer like them. Um, with an annuity, you're sort of handcuffed to that 
um, vehicle for a while. Sean? Yeah, so I think annuities are could be a very great tool if put in the proper situation. So one of the primary things that a financial planner will help folks do is run what's called a Monte Carlo simulation. It's a sophisticated uh, computer algorithm or, or spend down chart. So it says, okay, based on these inputs, you'll end up with this much money in retirement and it will last this long with varying degrees of probability. And so one of the things, one of the primary inputs into that simulation is volatility. So standard deviation or the risk associated with a particular investment is what contributes to that. And there aren't necessarily a lot of great controls for volatility. If you put your money in the stock market, it's subject to some significant volatility. You can put them in more conservative things like bonds or a home or something like that. Um, but an annuity gives you a place where you can get a guaranteed rate of return or a guaranteed payment amount. And that takes a huge amount of the volatility out of your personal equation. And that is very helpful for modeling Monte Carlo simulations. And so it could add some certainty to an otherwise uncertain situation. So I think that's a huge benefit. Another way to look at it that's often not how people view it is when you invest in an annuity, you're actually transferring part of your investment risk to the insurance company because the insurance company is guaranteeing that you're going to get those payments. So they have to manage that capital themselves to assure that those payment exists. And so they take on the investment risk to hit those uh, marks, whereas you don't have to. So you were actually able to transfer your investment risk to an insurance company, which is pretty rare. It's hard to transfer investment risk to somebody else, and this gives you an opportunity to do that. Um, so I think those are two big benefits that I see from annuities. They're pretty complex, though. So I mean, they come in all, like I said, all all different shapes and sizes. So I didn't think the moderator was allowed to give a point for the no, other person. I, well, but. no, I'm not necessarily. Well, the the point I wanted, the point I actually want to make is that. You guys do not actually take hard stances on any of these issues. And it's actually, in some circumstances, Sean is right and some Megan is right. It's all about the person, right? Right. The personal in personal finance. Except on where you're paying down your house, I think. It's pretty clear from my arguments that you shouldn't do that. Yes. Yeah, so are there any of these where you would, t- is, there, is that true that you would take a hard stance on that? Uh, no, no. I, th- I think there there are definitely instances where each one would apply to specific scenarios. It's nice to be able to try and do, you know, golden rules or something that's always adhered to. But that's actually the beauty of where we add value is that we can look at each situation and come up with really unique and clever strategies to add value to people's lives. So the fun part about this debate is that no one was right, no one was wrong, everybody wins. You're all special snowflakes. Do right? we get like a? Competitors ribbon or some some sort of no, but I star. I do <laughs> want to know though if you were running for president, what would your slogan be? So, for example, Trump's is "Make America Great," "Make America Great Again." There's also Reagan's apparently. Hillary has the somewhat uninspired "Hillary for America," and Bernie Sanders has "A Political Revolution Is Coming," and also the extremely off-putting "Feel the Burn." So. If you were to run for office, what would your slogan be? I think, uh, just to stay consistent, mine would be F.U. Money for All. Uh, Wow, okay. (laughs) The F stands for freedom. Uh, I want to keep it clean. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) 
This is Megan Brinsfield running for president under the slogan, Common Sense for All. C-E-N-T-S. Perfect. There we go. <laughs> Mine's way better, clearly. I won the debate and the slogan. You're no, a loser. All- no. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's Still a winner. Confronting. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us today and filling in for Bro. Um, we hope he gets feeling better. Poor guy. I know. To the mailbag. Sean and Megan are joining me to help answer some of your questions. They are financial advisors with Motley Fool Wealth Management, which is a sister company of the Motley Fool. I'm legally obligated to say that, sisters. And our first question comes to us from Daryl. He says, "Morning." Just have to say from the get-go, love the show. Daryl, we love you. (laughs) I recently retired from the Air Force at the age of 41, and thanks to The Motley Fool, I have no plans to work again. Awesome. That's, That's my commentary. My problem is how do we continue to save for retirement since I can no longer invest in my military TSP 401k account? My wife and I max out our IRAs, but we anticipate having additional money every year from Motley Fool options that we would like to stash away for retirement. Megan, what should he do? If you want to stash something away, I always think the mattress is a good place to start. My my mattress. Backyard. You can stuff it in my mattress. Yeah. <laughs> are you stashing the mattress itself or are you putting things? Just bury it in the backyard. Uh, no, but after you max out your uh, tax-advantaged accounts, you can always save money in taxable brokerage accounts. Just anything, any account that you would have at TD Ameritrade or Schwab or any brokerage like that. And while you might think, okay, I'm not getting a tax deduction up front, those investments over time are subject to a preferential um, tax rate when you ultimately sell stocks or investments to produce income later in retirement. So instead of pulling money out of your IRA and being taxed at um, ordinary tax rates, which could be 35, 39%, depending on your tax bracket. You are selling stock that you've held for greater than one year, and so you're being taxed on the appreciation at 15%. So you're really saving more over time. Just a regular old brokerage account. Yeah. Sean, do you have anything to add to that? Get fancy, Sean. Well, you you can always consider... (laughs) Is that what Sean does? He brings the fancy? He brings the fancy. I'm wearing my fancy pants. Uh, And I'm wearing my taxi pants. (laughs) (laughs) So you can consider other investment vehicles, such as insurance or annuities. So there are also tax preferences for those types of vehicles if it meets your circumstances. So you wouldn't necessarily look to those as an investment place if you don't need them. But if you do, then they do offer some investment benefits and some preferential tax treatment. So it's something to consider if if it comes up. Sounds like Daryl is sitting pretty, pretty, pretty here. Yeah, I hope to beat him by one year. He retired at 41. I'm hoping if 40. So, all right, go I'm for a, it. I'm after you, Daryl. All right, here it comes. Next question comes to us from Sandy. Sandy wants to know if one has a 401k with a broker, can one retrieve and manage it oneself? Yeah, so if you have a 401k, there are, there actually, what I wanted to talk about on this particular topic is something called a brokerage link account or, or some similar option where if you have a 401k, a lot of them, the employers, offer the ability to invest in a side brokerage account where you actually remove it from the traditional limited option choices that you have 
and put them into a similar account that Megan just mentioned, which is a taxable account, but it's just basically an account in your name. It is tax deferred and it is associated with the 401k, but the flexibility of it is similar to that taxable account in that you can invest in individual stocks, uh, anything publicly traded. You can start to do some more interesting things and it limit it opens up a limitless set of options almost. You can think about ETFs, you can think about mutual funds, uh, really anything, and you can actually control your investment costs as well. So the mutual funds inside your 401k typically have static costs associated with them. And if you transition to the brokerage link account, you could potentially reduce your overall investment expense fee. Yeah, we've heard from a lot of people who think that the options in their 401k stink. So is this something that it varies by your employer? Like not everyone, everyone's 401k is going to give you this option? Definitely. It varies by employer, so the employer has to set up the plan to have this brokerage option in it. And some employers do that. It's a little bit more administrative hassle on their part, um, and a lot of them don't, actually. All right, so ask your benefits person at your company. Definitely. And I think another thing to mention related to your 401k is really, with respect to that 401k, are you still working for that same employer or not? And if you're not, you have the ability to roll that 401k into an IRA, which gives you similar benefits in terms of investments and cost management. Absolutely. Yeah, because if you leave a 401k at an old employer, you can start incurring extra fees. In many plans, um, if you are no longer employed by that company, you don't receive all the same benefits as if you were. And a lot of plans will just kick you out. There are actually places where if you don't contribute or if you have a balance that's languishing, they'll just kick it out to you in a check, which you have to avoid because then you have to roll it over quickly. Right. That's always the terrifying thing, getting that check and being like, okay, I have 30 days or 60 days to get roll it over. Okay. All right. Next question. (laughs) This comes to us from David. He says, well, hello, Fulios. Longtime listener, first time writer here. I am writing with a question that I haven't heard on the show yet to date. I work for Starbucks and they offer the following options, a 401k match, an employee stock purchase program, which is a 5% discount uh, based off of a three-month average stock price, and they grant stock on a payout structure that no one understands completely, but basically free stock every once in a while, 10 to 40 shares a year. I was re-listening to the Buy Your First Stock episode, highly recommend that to our listeners, where Brokamp was talking about avoiding mixing human capital with investment capital. So my question is, would you recommend holding stock in a company you work for? I am a low-level manager, but I wonder if there is a threshold in which you hold for proof of loyalty or some other crazy reason. I like this question because here at The Motley Fool, we also get stock. And talk about mixing up your human capital. My husband also works at The Motley Fool. So if this company goes belly up, the Southwicks are in serious trouble. <laughs> not, that, not that it will, that I anticipate at all, but still. So I love this question. Why are the lights being turned off? <laughs> As we speak. <laughs> um, yeah, so I appreciate David's question mainly because a lot of people are in this situation where they're receiving some stock benefits and they don't completely understand how they're getting them, how they're being compensated. Um, And companies actually view it as a way to tie your economic benefits over the long term of working there with their success as a company. And so they see that as a good way to say, hey, you're contributing to our success, so you should reap some of the rewards of stock ownership. And so from that perspective, I really like it. There are a lot of executives, actually, that are required to maintain a certain amount of stock ownership to show that they are committed to working for the company and loyalty and all of those things. 
But for uh, rank and file employees, having some stock, I think, is healthy. And you just have to consider for yourself if it's um, too much of a risk to have your employment and some of your investment capital tied up with the same company. We we once went to um, Diana. Listeners will remember Diana. Diana and I, we once went to this women's conference and a woman was speaking and she talked about how um, she went to go work in an energy company. She didn't want to say the name of the energy company, but she went to go work for them. And in lieu of getting paid a ton of money that she felt she was worth, she just asked for pretty much all of all of it in stock. She has to be paid in stock. Um, and then, of course, the company went belly up. Enron. <laughs> and so for something like that, like you just can't anticipate if the company is going to go belly up. So what what would be in a, in her case she went obviously way too far by having all of her compensation in stock, but what would be an appropriate level? A general rule of thumb is that you shouldn't have more than about 10% of your net worth associated with employer stock. All right, that works. That's easy. Yeah, and I think, you know, in a previous podcast we had mentioned some of the there are benefits of having employer stock that you might not be aware of. And that might entice you to have more. So the 10% is a guideline, but there are interesting strategies from a planning perspective that you could implement that might encourage you to have more. And with the guidance of a planner, it might make a lot of sense to do it. And again, it's simple diversification. Warren Buffett got mostly rich off of Coke, one stock. So if you want to shoot for the fences and you have the risk tolerance to handle it, you can do that, but you just know the risks associated with the downside. Enron. Um, so we happen to have my in-laws here visiting us because it's Take Your Family to Work Day. So I wanted to say hi to Francie and Ron and ask, do you guys happen to have a question for Sean and Megan? Hey, Allison. I'm just a few years from retirement from my job and my retirement program. My uh, deferred comp program just started a um, Roth plan. Is it too late for me to go ahead and start moving my money into the Roth plan rather than take the tax deferment now? Good question. I don't think it's ever too late to consider the Roth 401k option, especially if you feel that you've saved a sufficient amount within your traditional 401k and other accounts. Um, Also, if you don't already have a Roth IRA or a tax-free bucket, um, we like to have at least three different buckets set up taxable, tax-deferred, and tax-free. And so if you don't have anything in that tax-free bucket, your Roth 401k is a great way to get money in there. Uh, Typically, a rule of thumb is that you would put money into the Roth 401k if your current tax bracket is 25% or less. All right, guys, thank you for answering these questions. We really appreciate it. And we would obviously love to have you back, not just when Bro is um, under the weather, severely under the weather, but we enjoy having you. So thank you for coming in. My pleasure. Glad to be a substitute. Just a reminder, I'm still collecting your video selfies to show at our annual company retreat. It's called Foolapalooza. I want to give a shout out to Kirk and Fresno and Aaron, who submitted theirs super speedy-like. As a reminder, I'm looking for people from our community to create a 10-second video. You can tell us your name, where you're from, and a message from you to The Motley Fool. It could be a message to an individual like Tom or David or an analyst. In return, I'll send you a video, perhaps bro, coming out of anesthesia from his surgery. Now that's a party. 
You can email your videos to answers at fool.com. You can also send bro a get well message. I'm sure he'd love to hear it. That'll do it for today. Thanks to Megan and Sean for joining us. This show is edited presidentially by Rick Engdahl. Join us next week when Morgan Housel returns to discuss stock market superstitions and we taste test all things pumpkin spice and crown a winner. For, oh, just myself. There's no bro. I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on and feel better, bro. Thank you.